I love the Macy's Mother's Day gift guide. I use it. It has the perfect gift to make all moms feel special. You can shop by price. You can shop by category. They have gift lists. You know, they have a list for the mom who has everything, one for grandma. And you can get top gifts like the Coach Floral Printed Leather Cassie Crossbody Bag. I love a crossbody bag. Or the thing that my mom loved more than anything, the Le Creuset Shallot Dutch Oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash gift finder. If you love tequila cocktails, then check out the award-winning 21 Seeds Infused Tequila. It's a -a one-of-a-kind tequila that is infused with the juice of real fruit. So it's Smooth, it's not sweet, it smells fresh and bright, and it tastes incredible. 21 Seeds makes the most delicious and easy margaritas and cocktails so you can focus on the fun, like game night with your besties. With 21 Seeds, you only need two or three ingredients to make your perfect cocktail. Try 21 Seeds infused tequila. Learn more at 21seeds.com. Enjoy responsibly. 21 Seeds, Diageo, New York, New York. Jenna Fisher. And I'm Angela Kinsey. We were on The Office together. And we're best friends. And now we're doing the ultimate Office rewatch podcast just for you. Each week, we will break down an episode of The Office and give exclusive behind-the-scenes stories that only two people who were there can tell you. We're The Office Ladies. Hello, everyone. Hi, you guys. We are really excited about this week's episode. It's kind of special. It really is. We got to interview Mike Schur. You guys know he played Moe's on the show. He was also one of our original writers. We got to interview him, and it was awesome. It was delicious. We loved it. We re-listened to it, and we're like, this needs to be a whole episode. Yeah. We had just had so much to talk with him about. But first, we're still going to give you fast facts. Always fast facts, guys. You know. Always fast facts. Oh, my gosh. Jen, I feel like you're going to be like in your 80s and you're going to be like sitting in a corner mumbling like fast facts, fast facts, fast facts. (laughs) And they'll be like, what's grandma talking about? Oh, she used to do this thing called fast facts. (laughs) Well, these are Mike Sure fast facts. Fast fact number one, Mike was on the writing staff from season one through season four. He wrote 10 episodes. And here's what they were. The Alliance. Office Olympics, Christmas Party, Valentine's Day. That was one of our hidden gems in our re-listen. Branch Closing, Traveling Salesman, The Return, The Negotiation, The Job. That's the one where Jim comes in and asks Pam on a date at the end. I know. And Dunder Mifflin Infinity. You know, Mike told me The Negotiation was his favorite Angela Martin episode. Oh, really? She's like getting titillated by hearing people recount the Jim and Roy like oh, scuffle. Yes. yes. Yeah. He said that was his favorite episode to write for my character. I felt like he just liked writing for your character a lot. <laughs> your character always had great moments in his episodes. They did. I, I loved it when Mike was assigned an episode. Well, Mike also wrote the Accountants webisodes with Paul Lieberstein. He played Moe's in 13 episodes of the show starting in season two. He talks a lot about playing Moe's in our interview. It's very fun. (laughs) It is. His love-hate relationship with Moe's. Well, here is fast fact number two. I'm going to talk to you about shows he's created. I think you guys know the show that he started on SNL. He was there for six seasons. During his time on SNL, he produced The Weekend Update. Oh, yeah. Yeah, from 2001. That's a big deal. That's a prestigious position. Yes. He did it from 2001 to 2004. 
He, of course, was a writer on The Office until 2008. He then went on to co-create Parks and Rec, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, and he created The Good Place and Rutherford Falls with our very own Ed Helms. Wow. Yeah. His resume is full of other shows that he's also produced on and written for. I have to give a shout out to one, Jenna, because I love this show. Did you know that he co-produced The Comeback with Lisa Kudrow? And he wrote two episodes, and I loved that show. And I, I loved it. I found that out about him in the first season of The Office, and I was, like, enamored with him. Like, to me, that was, like, superstar status, that he wrote that just amazing satire. It makes me want to go back and rewatch it. I had forgotten that he worked on it, and when I was looking up his credits, I was like, oh, I want to rewatch the comeback. Well, fast fact number three, Mike Schur wrote a book. It's called How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. Here is how he described it to us in an email. <laughs> he said, it's a book about how hard it is to be a good person and how we can use ethics and moral philosophy to try not to screw up all the time, but in a funny way, not like in a homework way. The basic idea was to explain all the stuff I learned for The Good Place without giving everyone a headache. You guys, when we did this interview with Mike, our copies of his book had not arrived yet, but we have them now, and this is a truly special book. I started reading it, and I can't stop. I'm Same. like binging a book. Same. I love it. I couldn't put it down. I was reading it last night. This morning, I was like, I want to read more. Like, I woke up thinking about it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So Mike is such an amazing writer. We already know that, but he takes this conversation of morality, and he makes it funny and interesting and relatable. For example, there's a chapter titled, and by the way, all the chapter titles are hilarious, but here's one that cracked me up. There's a chapter titled, Do I Have to Return My Shopping Cart to the Shopping Cart Rack Thingy? It's all the way over there. Yes. And then basically what he does is he answers that question and the answer is based on all of these ancient philosophers and you know, ethics and yes. morality and yes. your moral compass. Yes. So listen, I think we should take a break. And when we come back, you get to listen to Mike Schur. And we get to find out so much about Moe's. It's a treat, we promise. So this winter, we went on a little ski trip with another family and we got an Airbnb, which was so wonderful, right? Because... You can make your own breakfast in the morning. We could even go there for lunch to warm up. Listen, I always want a kitchen with kids. Yep. I don't want to call room service for some sliced apples. I want to have my groceries. I need a kitchen. Yes. Well, this is why doing the Airbnb thing was so perfect. Yep. Well, this family we were staying with told us that they listed their house on Airbnb back in California. Oh, that's so smart. I know a lot of people that do this. It's like, oh, we want to go to Disneyland. We can Airbnb our place and then use that money to go. It pays for your trip. Yep. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. I'm loving Hungry Root. Oh my gosh, yes, Jenna, we're loving Hungry Root, too. They've got fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, snacks, smoothies, sweets, ready-to-eat meals, kids' snacks and meals, and vitamins and supplements. Well, I took the quiz, 
over on Hungry Root, and oh my gosh, they nailed it. One of the things that I really wanted was I wanted a salmon dish that was quick and easy. I said I wanted to cook food in less than 12 minutes. I was very ambitious. This was one of the choices. And they sent me a miso salmon that, oh my goodness, it blew my mind. And it was easy. It was maybe five ingredients. So tasty, so fresh. I loved it. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Office Ladies listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash Office Ladies to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash Office Ladies. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. When you travel, do you ever think like, oh no, I hope I locked up. Did I leave a window open? Things like that. Well, that's why you should invest in Simply Safe Home Security today. Simply Safe was named Best Home Security System in 2024 by the U.S. News and World Report, and Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. Well, you all have heard me talk about Simply Safe because it really is simple and it does make me feel safe. We went through the website and we picked exactly what we needed for our home. That's what I really like is you can customize what you need to fit your living space. You know, I love our Simply Safe. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash office ladies. That's simplysafe.com slash office ladies. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Mike Schur, welcome to Office Ladies. Woo-hoo! I'm so excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of you as people, Yay! first of all, first and foremost. Second of all, you as actors. And then third of all, you as podcasters. This has been such a delight to watch you do this thing to celebrate this show that we all made together. I'm so happy to be here. It's a real honor. Oh, Mike, thank you so much. We love you. We're so thrilled to have you here. And I know the fans are going to enjoy just hearing your voice. Jen and I both listened to you um, quite a bit before this, and we both found you really pleasing to listen to. Really? Yeah, we like your voice quite we like a lot. Your voice. You listen to me in what context? Other where, where podcasts, was I interviews, Mike. podcasts. We do okay. our research here on Office Ladies. Yeah. I, that's very nice of you to say, because I've always found my own voice to be slightly annoying, which I think maybe most people do that you're like, it's the phenomenon of hearing your voice played back to you in this is how old we are, is like on an answering machine message. Uh, or something. If yeah. you were, you know, you'd be like, Oh, is that what I sound like? I always feel like I sound a little annoying and nasally, but I'm glad to hear you say that. Well, I felt that way about myself, too. And I sort of brushed it off like, oh, that's just everybody feels that way about their own voice. But then we recently rewatched an episode where um, Michael is trying to get Jim to say something bad about Pam. And he gets Jim to admit that Pam's voice is rather shrill sometimes. <laughs> yes. And I thought, oh, I guess maybe in the writer's, writer's room, room. <laughs> when forced to come up with something annoying about me, we settled on my shrill voice. So thank you so much. That which didn't give which, me a complex which writer or hated your voice? I don't know. <laughs> I'm Mike, very, do you know? very pleased to say that I think I was gone by the time that was written. So I do not have to it answer wasn't for that you. crime. Well played. No, it wasn't you. Well, listen, we always like to ask people when they come on the podcast, how did they get their job on the office? And we know that you did double duty. You were a writer but then you were also a performer. 
But let's start with how did you get your job as a writer on the show? So I was writing at Saturday Night Live from 1998 to 2004. My then girlfriend, now wife of 16 years, had moved out to L.A. In, in permanently in like 2002, and we were dating long distance. And in like 2003, it was like, all right, if this is ever going to really work, either she had to move back to New York or I had to leave and move to L.A. And it made more sense for me to move to L.A. because there are more jobs there. So I, I gave my like year's notice uh, to Lauren Michaels and said I was leaving at the end of the year and um, got an agent for the first time in my life because I never needed one. And I was like, all right, I'm moving. And the first thing he told me was, you know, this guy, Greg Daniels, is adapting the British office for American television. And I responded, uh, what a terrible idea. <laughs> this is a disaster. <laughs> you shouldn't do this. No one should do this because I was a huge fan of the British show. This is a, such a classic story, right? I, I was a huge fan of the British show. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I didn't think there was any way it would ever work in America. But it was like, well, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Like, I, I, I have to get a job out there. So I came to L.A. Um, sometime in, I don't even remember, like, or like winter, I think, like February on an off week at SNL. And I had a bunch of meetings, and one of them was with Greg. So most of the meetings I had with producers were pretty standard hour-long chats, uh, you know, hey, here's our, here's our pilot, watch the pilot, and let's talk about the show. And I dutifully tried to you know, say nice things about whatever they were working on. Um, and then I met with Greg and my meeting with Greg was two hours long, more than two hours long. And it was so different from every other meeting. It was, um, it was like intense and in depth and fascinating. At, at, in the middle of the meeting, he said, I'm, I'm very sorry, but my back is acting up. Would you mind if I lied down? <laughs> and I said, no. And so he lay on the floor on his back in front of me while I sat on his couch. So I think to an outside observer, it would look very much like we were in like Freudian analysis where I was his <laughs> therapist and he was like free associating. Um, but he just asked the most incisive questions, the most penetrating questions about the nature of storytelling and about the British show and why it worked and what he had to do to make it uh, work here. And I left the meeting and I, I texted on my like Motorola Razor, I texted my agent and I said, um, I don't know if that guy's going to offer me a job, but if he does, I'm going to take it because I think he's going to teach me how to write. <gasps> and um, my agent uh, sends me that text like every four years wow. back to me. He sends it back to me and says like, you were right. You were right. You're right. Um, so, so Greg offered me the job um, and I happily took it. And I thought this is obviously not going to work. Uh, it's a, it is a, um, it is a fool's errand to try to adapt this show for an American audience, but he's going to teach me how to write. And that's exactly what happened in that first season. You know, the only full-time writers really were me, Mindy and BJ because, mm -hmm. um, Lester Lewis, the late Lester Lewis and Paul Lieberstein and Larry Wilmore were consultants and Mindy and BJ and I had never written anything. We didn't have any idea what we were doing. And Greg basically taught a class. He taught a, a, a like the true professor he is. He taught a class on how to write, and um, and it changed all of our lives forever. So that that's my office origin story. Wow, that is so good, Mike. I remember you guys um, that first season. There were so few of you, yeah, and um, how close you all became because of that. Yeah, it was a tiny 
little Greg used to call it uh, a strike force. He was like, this is an elite strike force, which I think was just him trying to boost our confidence because we had no idea what we were doing. Um, but it was really, you know, it was it was a very, very small group of people who were working really, really hard on a very small number of episodes. We only had we only wrote five scripts like, um, mm -hmm. you know, we each wrote we we actually wrote uh, we wrote six to make five. I'm not sure if you remember this, but we wrote, or even if you even knew this, Greg, one of the only things that Greg was able to squeeze out of NBC in that first year was he let us write one more script than we would shoot. And so we wrote one extra episode, um, that I think he wrote. And then we just, we picked the best five out of the six that we had written and threw the other one away. And I wish I could remember what that other one was. There is a, there is a lost Oh, that'd be season a good question one. for Greg. Yeah, there's a lost season one office episode script out there somewhere that we just never, uh, that we never produced. Um, so it was, and it was like, you know, it was really intense work and it was a combination of, of like story breaking, but also just like a masterclass in how to create television and what makes a good story. There were times when, I've told this story before, but there were times when Greg was talking, we would be pitching and I, I had a notebook where I would like just jot down ideas and there would be moments when Greg would say, um, well, let's talk about what, let's just pause for a second and, and talk about like what makes a good story. And then he would start kind of like going through the list of things that he felt were crucial to good TV stories. And I would realize like, oh, he's in lecture mode is what the way I thought of it was lecture mode, which was a good thing. It sounds like a bad thing, but it was mm -hmm. a good thing. And I would turn the page and I would start taking notes like I was in college. And I would just like write down as if he were an, an actual professor and I had a test coming up and I would start just writing down. And I still have those notes and I still go back and look at them every once in a while to like remember, to refresh my memory about what he told us all about storytelling. Uh, it was that, that intense and that sort of foundational and meaningful to all of us. Oh man. Wow. I do remember those early days about what a small collective we were. Even our table reads, do you remember? We would yeah. just pull up chairs on the stage where we were filming. We would just all grab like a desk chair and sit in a circle and read the script. And yeah. I, I loved that. Mm -hmm. It was well, really it was, intimate. There were so many cool things about that first season, including that um, the 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 place where we worked was on this weird soundstage in the middle of Culver City or something. And so Hollywood soundstages are often, um, you know, these big, gigantic, empty rooms where you put sets and then attached to them usually or above them are a suite of offices where the writers and the production staff works. But the that suite of offices became the actual set. Like the set that we built was modeled on the crappy offices where the writers were working and right down to the layout, like Greg was in Mike, what, what would be Michael's office. And there was like a reception desk right outside it that became Pam's reception desk. And, and so we would do these drills. Greg would have us do these drills where he would go like, okay, take a half an hour and like go sit at Pam's desk or go sit in Michael's office or what will be Michael's office or go, go sit where Jim sits and like, just get a sense of like, like, what is your eyeline to Pam? Right. So he would put, he would put Mindy at, pa at Pam's reception desk and he would put BJ at Jim's desk. And he would say like, just sit there and like absorb the vibe of like, imagine that you're in love with that person and that you have to like angle your chair in such a way so that you can catch a glimpse of her out of the corner of your eye or whatever. 
And it was fascinating. It was really interesting. And I remember at one point he had me go into work in Michael's office or what the office that would be the model for Michael's office. And I remember hating it because it was like I, I was in this, I was far away from everything and yeah. all this. In, and I would see people talking through the windows and I'd be like, what are they talking about? <laughs> and I had the urge to like go out and like do what Michael did all the time, which was like, hey, what's going on? You know, <laughs> like, and it, it was like, he was just so, um, he knew so much about what he wanted out of the show that he would, he would practice not just the skill of writing the characters, but the, the skill of like embodying them or emotionally connecting to them. And it was just, it, that's what I mean when I say it was professorial. It was, it wasn't just like, all right, what's episode two? What's the act break? What's the first act break for the, for the season finale, it was really like we had to embody the characters and understand them emotionally and 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 socially in a way that I think uh, led to great episodes, you know? Well, it's so interesting because when all the actors got there, then they did that to us, too. They made us sit at our desks and just sit there and mm-hmm. feel it. We've talked about that before. And so I love that that started all the way back with you guys writing the episodes. Yeah, June of June of 2004, like they're right from the from the jump. There were things like that that we did that weren't um, that weren't the typical things that you would do with a writing staff. Another thing he did all the time, which I thought was so smart, which I still do on shows that I work on now, is we would come into work one day and he would go, he would have he would put all the characters names on a board and he would pick two of them at random and he would give them to he would say me and Larry Wilmore like go come up with five story ideas for Oscar and Kelly. And then, and then you, Mindy and Paul, like go come up with five story ideas for, uh, you know, Jim and Stanley. And it, for an hour, we would just pitch, okay, well, what the hell could a story be with Oscar and (laughs) Kelly? But it, it led to some really cool stuff. And like some of those, some of the little, the B stories and the C stories of, of that that came that were in the first couple seasons were just brainstorming like random pairings of people. He he understood fundamentally that one of the great advantages that the show had over other shows is that we had 20 people. We had like most shows have whatever six main characters or something. And so pretty quickly you get tired of a story with involving these two people or these three people. And he was like, that's not what this is going to be. This is going to be a, this, the whole point of the show is to observe like an anthropologist, observe the comings and goings of a large number of people in in the same office environment. So like go work on random pairings and like sometimes really fun stuff would come out of it. You know, like he just so thoroughly understood what, what made the show special and what the potential was for how good it could be that, that he had all of these machinations and he was move always moving pieces around the chessboard with the writers in those for in those early days you know yeah i i remember telling my dad i was trying to describe this group of people um and the show to my dad who is was not at all in entertainment you know he's a drilling engineer um but sometimes we could talk sports and i said dad here's the deal we have a deep bench dad mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like a basketball term like our team is so good there's so many layers to this team and and then when he came and you know um greg invited them to sit at a table read at lunch my dad was like i get it i get I it I get it now yeah, yeah i get it like because <laughs> there were laughs i think coming from him and all these places you know yeah well i was gonna say that um in season nine 
John and I were invited to be producers on the show to kind of help carve out Jim and Pam's final season. And we got to come into their writer's room, mostly as observers. And Greg was running the show that season, and he was still doing those exercises. And it was fascinating. Except in this case, it was more like homework. I remember... um, the day started and Greg said, okay, get out your homework. And the homework had been that everyone had to come up with five ideas for, I can't remember what it was, but it was like for a Dwight and Stanley cold open, go. (laughs) And, um, And then you would just sit and listen. And then when there was an idea that piqued his interest, he would say, oh, oh, okay, you two go off, flesh that out. And then p- two people would leave the room and then we mm-hmm. would keep listening to the homework. And I I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I would be so terrified to present <laughs> my five ideas because sometimes it was just crickets. Like you Ooh. could just hear mm-hmm. the ideas just die in the room. <laughs> um, it, I, I mean, what an intense and vulnerable thing to pitch your creative ideas in front of like a room of people who are all judging whether or not you should follow that thread. Yes, one of his greatest strengths is that he is unafraid, I would say, of failure. Um, and I think, I believe that that comes, I'm guessing that that comes partially from working at Saturday Night Live because what you just described of like pitching ideas and and having them bomb, right? That is the essence of working at SNL, except your failures at SNL are public. Like you write sketches and there's a read through with the entire cast of the of the show and Lauren and all the producers around a giant table. And the audience is a hundred and 150 people who work on the show. And by the way, a very famous person who's hosting the show, like, you know, Drake is reading your your sketch or whatever. <laughs> oh my God. And you there are moments at SNL where you know, your sketches are 12 pages long or whatever. And you're, the sketch starts and you get to page two and like the joke of the sketch is sprung and no one laughs. <sighs> and in your head, you're like, there's 10 more pages. <sighs> of this. Like we have to sit here for 10 more pages as no one finds my premise funny. And so for the first, I don't know what Greg's experience was. I've never really talked to him about his time there, but for the first like six months, you it's uh, uh, you fall into a deep depression. Like it, it's just like it's so embarrassing to fail that way publicly. And then the week goes by and the show happens and then it's like, all right, it's Monday again. Do it again. And you like do it again and you fail again and you fail and you fail and you fail. And eventually at some point, hopefully you kind of figure it out and you write a sketch and it gets some laughs and you're like, OK, it's not the end of the world. Like I'm still here. And then you get a little better and a little better. And that, like, that theory is, it's pretty brutal on your ego. But when you've already had it driven out of your ego from working at SNL, <laughs> like five five Stanley cold opens, I can, uh, who cares? No problem. Can, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, that, and his theory is really like, this is a numbers game. Like the way to get to the best ideas is you have to create a thousand ideas in mm-hmm. order to find the two that are good. And he took that approach with everything. He took that approach when he was hiring writers. He took that approach when he was casting people. I mean, how long did the casting process go on um, for for the show? Endlessly long, endlessly, endlessly long. And that's just his, um, he, he's just the most thorough person when it comes to that. He doesn't settle for anything. He He demands that you walk down. I mean, when we're 
when we're when we were breaking stories, like we would get five sixths of the way down the line toward breaking a story, and we'd get to a point where he would realize it didn't work, and he would go like, "Man, eh, this doesn't work. Throw it away. Start over." And it's really exhausting, but also <laughs> wow. the show lasted for ten years yeah. and it was really good. So, and um, here we are still yeah. talking about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, seventeen years later. Wow. Well, folks, you know I have a lot of family in Texas, and I just want you to know, if you travel to Texas, there are vast landscapes, cultures, regions, destinations, activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. You can have fun in the sun. Texas has 350 miles of coastline. That's right. Or if you like more of a rugged vacation, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, state parks, and the food. Can we talk about the food? Tex-Mex. And barbecue. There's live music, art museums, cowboy experiences. Come on. Right now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-the-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom visually-led trip matched to their unique interests. So you go in there and you click your interests and it'll say, here's where you want to go in Texas. Mm-hmm. Visit TravelTexas.com slash get your own to get the only trip to Texas that matters, yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash get your own. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed to connect with candidates faster by scheduling, screening, and messaging. And Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 23 hires were made on Indeed every minute, according to Indeed Data Worldwide. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OfficeLadies. Just go to Indeed.com slash OfficeLadies right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash office ladies. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, now I think we have to ask you, Mike. Yeah, we do. How did you come to play Moe's? <laughs> yeah. Something we understand you hated. You hated being Moe's, but we love okay. Moe's. Let me let me let me be just delineate here importantly. I love the fact that I played Moe's. I hated actually doing it because, <laughs> uh, for two reasons. So, so here's the story. The story was in the in the Greg always had it as part of Dwight Schrute's backstory that he he himself was not Amish or um, or Mennonite or anything like that, but he was sort of Amish adjacent. That he had relatives. He was a Germanic. He was of Germanic descent, living in Pennsylvania. That is, um, uh, that's that alone is sort of Amish adjacent. So Greg always had it in the back of his head that there was a sort of cousin, a shrewd cousin farming community that was uh, that was either Amish or something in the Amish family. So there, in in two thousand four, uh, there was a reality show called Amish in the City. Yes, yes, yeah. I saw that. 
Yes. Um, it was a terrible, terrible program. It was so uh, hard to was, watch. It was so awful. And I, my wife and I watched it and I was sort of trying to express how cringy it was to the writer's room one day. The premise of the show was they took a bunch of idiot club kids from L.A., who were on spring break and they were like, you guys are going to come stay in this awesome house in the Hollywood Hills. And they were all psyched and they were like, we're going to get so drunk and party and whatever. What they didn't know that also invited to stay in the house were a bunch of young Amish folks on Rumspringa who had been released um, for their year of exploration and they were going to live together. And, and then, you know, hot mess ensues, hot, hot, hot mess ensues. (laughs) Right. So, one of the characters on the show who was Amish was named Mose. And Mose was this delightful, kind-hearted, fragile uh, egg who um, would, tried his best to become friends with the idiot club kids from L.A. And among other ways that he tried this were he fashioned his own wooden toys, like little, like a little wooden airplane or a little wooden car and like present, like, he made very, them himself. He made them himself and he presented them to his new friends and they were just like, what the hell is this, right? Ugh. And I, so I was Rick relating this story to the room about how like awful this show was and Greg pointed at me with his giant finger, I remember <laughs> it so clearly, and said, you're going to play Moe's, you're Dwight's cousin, you're, gonna, you're Moe's. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And he was like, no, I'm serious, that we're going to do this, you're going to play Moe's. And I thought it was a joke for a couple of reasons. First, because I thought it was a joke. Second, because <laughs> all of the other writers, as you may know, got to play essentially like versions of themselves or significant characters in the show. Like Mindy was in the show all the time and Paul was in the show all the time and BJ was in the show all the time. And Greg was essentially saying, you are a joke <laughs> and I'm going to turn you into a joke. And then, so the first time that we did it, it was in a photo. It was when, yes. when mm-hmm. Rain just says, I have a cousin, I run a beet farm with my cousin Moses. It was in an episode I wrote. It was the one where Michael buys a condo. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was just a photo. And I was like, great, I'll I'll put on a fake beard. And and uh, actually, I don't even think I had the beard for the photo, but I'll dress up in these wool clothes and we'll take a photo and that'll be the end of it. But then the writers, my so-called friends, <laughs> got very excited about me playing Moe's and started writing me into episodes all the time. And it was the episode BJ wrote um, the, the, where the, the initiation where Dwight was trying to initiate Ryan into like a, some kind of salesman fraternity mm-hmm. by the, bringing him to his farm. And they wrote Moe's into the show. And so, so um, Greg insisted for this episode that I have a real beard. He didn't, he didn't believe that a fake beard, according to him, would look real. And I was like, listen, I don't grow facial hair very easily. Like, it's going to take me a long time. He's like, well, you better get started. It was basically just hazing. That's all, that's all it was. So I grew a real beard um, for months and months and months. And in that time, uh, the show was nominated for an Emmy. And Greg and I and some of the other producers went around and took, had a bunch of like fancy Hollywood events that we went to. And in every one of those <laughs> photos, I have the disgusting, wiry Moe's beard. And then, so that episode was supposed to be the first one we shot that in, a, in season three. 
But then there was a, I can't remember why, there was some kind of production issue or, or script issue or something, and it got delayed like two or three more months. Oh, <laughs> so that, no. So that I had to keep, and I, and I realized, like, I remember like this sweating panic of like, I was counting down the days until I could shave. And I was like, oh, no, now it's, I can't shave now and then grow the beard back in time. So I had to keep it like another three months. And then by the time we finally shot it, it was like mid-September <laughs> in, in deep in the valley on that Disney Ranch Valley where, uh, location where we shot Rain's, uh, Dwight's farm. It was uh, the day we shot that first episode, the high that day was 105. Oh. And I was wearing long johns and wool pants and a wool shirt and suspenders and these old work boots that were incredibly uncomfortable and I had to run around and, and pretend to wrestle Ryan. And like, I was just like, I was like a ghost. Like I was just like running through, I was like a horror movie ghost running through the background <laughs> of scenes. It took an entire day. I had to get up at 4.30 in the morning oh, yeah. to get to Disney Ranch by 5.30. And I was like, well, at least I'll never have to do that again. Oh. And then the writers, my so-called friends, wrote me into like a hundred more episodes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I'm... I'm very honored and happy to have played a small, silly role in the uh, in the history of the show on screen. But the actual act of doing it was always 105. They always <laughs> I was always shirtless on a seesaw or running <laughs> alongside a car like a dog or in in probably the scariest moment of my life being slapped like uh like being punched in the face essentially by Angela Kinsey. I know. It was this it, that was one I, of the I, most terrifying moments of my life. Do you remember that when yes, we had to do that? Yes, I was going to talk to you about it because Angela and Mose had so many actual scenes together and a yeah. lot of them are in the deleted scenes I'm watching the DVDs. Some made it in, but you know, a few really cracked me up and but I have to talk to you about that one. First, I want to say there was a deleted scene in the surplus where I'm at Shroop Farms with Andy. We're wedding planning. Dwight is our wedding planner. We're mm -hmm. trying to discuss a butter sculpture and Andy's signing all these papers. And you're coming in the kitchen and I hiss at you. Like, <laughs> like and, a then, cat. and yes. then you run away. And we kept breaking at this because it was so absurd. So there's that <laughs> that moment. Like, what what is Angela and Mose? What is their relationship? But then the episode he's talking about, I want to look because I wrote it's it. It's the finale. It's the no, series finale. No, that's when you kidnap me. <laughs> oh, right, Wait, right, right. There, no. Okay. The episode was Free Family Portrait. Yeah. And Angela is chasing who she thinks is Dwight in Dwight's right. car, but it's Moe's dressed as Dwight because mm -hmm. she wants to find out if Dwight's found out about her baby, right? Right, right. And one of the things I remember, which is crazy in hindsight, Mike, is that you and I did our own stunt driving where we had to screech into a cul-de-sac and pull side by side, like yes. really fast, turn on a dime. And then I fly out of the car because they didn't want to waste any time, lose all that footage. And I run up and I swing open the door and it's Moe's and not Dwight. And you won't right. tell me where Dwight is. And they wanted me to slap the shit out of you. Right. So what happened was we were like, okay, you and I just were like, so let's just like walk through how this happens. And you were kind of like, okay, so I'll come over here and then I'll get out here and you'll stand against the car and then I'll, and then I'll slap you. And you like just sort of moved your hand in the I did motion a fakie. of what it would be. You did a yeah. fakie. And I was like, okay, yeah, this seems okay. So we do the first take. We screech up. We do a good job of doing our own stunts, by the way, yeah. you and me. 
we, you pull me out. You're like, where's, where's Dwight? Where's Dwight? I'm like, I don't know. Or something or, or something. And then you slap me, but you slap me for real. You hit me so hard. I spun around like a top and, <laughs> oh, no. and, and like hit the roof of the car and was like, my ears were ringing. And I remember like, I was like, oh, I can't hear what she's saying to me because my ears are ringing so loudly. <laughs> oh my God, Mike, I'm so sorry. You know, Matt Stone told me, he was like, Angela, you're going to have to really hit him because we're pretty wide. It'll be, you won't be able to do the fakie. Yes. And, and I, and I, I also remember this is not your fault. None of this is your fault. I feel so bad. I felt so bad. And I, because I remember saying, no, really hit me because I'm six feet tall. You are not six feet tall. I am five one. Right. And I was like, no, I, I've, I hate it when there's like a fake slap on TV. I'm sure this will be fine. Just, just really hit me. It'll be fine. I remember telling you that, like, just really hit me. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. I had no idea uh, that you were a mixed martial arts <laughs> uh, professional and you hit me so hard. I really like lost my, I did not know where I was. I didn't know what was happening. I, I my eyes went blank and my hearing dropped out oh and I my. had no idea what was happening. It was wonderful. I'm so, it, I, it, and that's the take they used, thankfully, because afterwards, also, I remember afterwards you were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, no, no. I just didn't understand how strong you were. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Muggers beware. Okay. Angela Kinsey. I do remember. I felt so bad. And I remember saying, I, I was trying to like think, why, why, why was that so hard? Maybe it was the momentum because I'm running. <laughs> I was like trying to like think about, I don't know where the ninja came I, from, Mike. I think that slapping is just like a more shocking thing than you. Th- I've never been slapped in my life. I'm proud to say. And so I, I think I just greatly underestimated the force of the blow that was about to <laughs> about to hit my face but I, this is this is all part of this larger conversation of why it wasn't fun to play Moe's. it's because not only was it always a sight gag uh but also like the sometimes the writers would write actual lines for me and then in the edit it would always be like yeah it's funnier if we don't hear from Moe's, right so they would, they would cut all the lines and then it was like what is the most humiliating way that we can use him and it was like being slapped be like in an outhouse with his pants around his ankles Aww. while the door is slamming closed. Like it was just, it was Greg's and the writer's way of just like enjoying tormenting me. So now when I look back, I'm, it's, I'm so happy that I did it. But at every time I had to like leave the writer's room, a place where I knew what I was doing and go be a performer where I did not know what I was doing. I was always a little bit like, this is a, this is torture. I always felt like it was a little bit of torture. Mike, do you get recognized for being Moe's very often? There are certainly times when I'm recognized for that, yes. I mean, I'm older. I'm I'm 17 years older, and my hair is a lot grayer, and so people don't uh, don't recognize me as often as you would think they would, given how popular the show still is. I will say that like, my son went to a, a basketball camp a couple summers ago, and uh, I went to pick him up from the camp. And uh, my son had just watched the show. I think he was 10 or 11 and he had just watched the whole show. And he was very excited to tell people that I wrote for it and that I played Moe's. And um, so I went to pick him up from the camp and one of his counselors, I walked over to where the kids were. And one of his counselors saw me coming and he just broke into this huge smile and was like, hey. And I was like, all right, this guy knows that I was Moe's. <laughs> and like, you can always kind of tell when people recognize me. I did also, when the pandemic first hit, uh, I I did a fundraiser for uh, LA Regional Food Bank, 
which is a charity I really like. The LA Regional Food Bank gives out food uh, to a lot of people in LA County. And I said like, all right, I'm going to try to raise money for LA Regional Food Bank. Um, the uh, And I'll match donations up to, I can't remember what it was, some $25,000 or something. And it and like very quickly, uh, donations started pouring in. And then like a true moron, I said, if we raise $50,000 by the end of the day, uh, I will shave my head. <gasps> And that, um, and it was a joke, but like that caused donations to really pour in. And to the point where like, it was like within an hour, there were, we were at like $50,000. And so then I was like, oh, I see, I see the game. The game is humiliation, right? Like if I just, if I offer humiliation, like we'll raise more money. So then I put it up as a poll and said, would you rather have me shave my head or grow the Mose beard? And grow the Mose beard one in a landslide. So I had so over the in the early in like May May June July of 2020, I spent like again like three months growing the beard out and then shaved my mustache. So I just had the, the <laughs> neck beard. And around that time, I got recognized even with masks. I got recognized oh, yeah. like every everywhere I went. Like that was a big that was like a big Mose moment because it was right when. The pandemic hit, everybody was streaming the show, like the popularity of the show really surged. And then also I was walking around with the beers. So that was a, <laughs> there was, that was a real high, high frequency Moe's sighting, I would say. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. We've, we've talked a lot about the crazy things you had to do as Moe's that were sort of torturous. Was there any yeah. moment being Moe's that you had fun? Was there a scene? Was there one moment that you really enjoyed? It was always fun. Like it, the it, like even when I was being tortured, it was always fun because I, I really like, I revere actors, uh, in a in a very sort of um, childlike way. I, 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 I don't, I fundamentally don't understand how actors do what you do. Uh, I, I find it to be the most difficult of all of the performing arts by far. It's so much harder than writing. I think it's harder than directing. And I, I really, um, that was really hammered home to me, even when I was doing this ridiculous sight gag and had to say a few words here and there, I was always like, God, I, I'm so much worse at this than I am in my head. Uh, which is why I'm a writer. <laughs> That's like what a writer is, right? I know, I know what it should be. I just don't know how to actually do it myself. So I, there were times when, for example, do you remember the episode where, um, of course you do. The episode where where Jim and Pam are excited because Shrewd Farms has become a B and B. Yes, and they go and check in. It's the one where I run a- along the side of the car like a dog at mm-hmm. the beginning, right? Yes, and I then- want to mention quickly, Mike, for anybody. Um, John Krasinski was not driving slow. I was. No. Yeah, I was in the car, and I. I remember that it was 100 degrees that day because that's the day that John thought it would be really funny to prank me and put the car heater seat <laughs> on uh, because we weren't allowed to have the air conditioner for sound. And I was like, right. so hot. But then you were running next to the car. So I thought, well, I can't complain about being hot because, I mean, look at Mike out there, like, running his hardest. And John was, like, going fast. I mean, I, I don't know how you did it. Fast. How he- I don't know how you did that. He, it, that was the hardest. That was the hardest acting I've ever done, and all I was doing was running because I was in those wool clothes and I was wearing those work boots, 
And John was driving like 15 to 20 miles an hour yeah. on that dirt road. Wow. And I had to keep up. And I, but also I had to run up to the window, disappear behind the car, and then run fast to catch up to the other side of the window. Exactly. And also yeah. you weren't allowed to use your arms. Yes. Your arms yes. were like, so you, there was like a lack of momentum <laughs> that you could create because you were only using your bottom half. I want to yeah. read to you what Dunderpedia, uh, the fan website, how they um, explain Moses running. They okay. say, Mose proceeds to run away in his usual running with his arms swinging no higher than his waist style. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that came from. I like one of the early one of the early Mose appearances it was like you know, Mose runs into the I think it was in the in the initiation like Mose runs into the room and I don't know why but I just did that really awkward run. That's not how I run when I'm running. <laughs> I hope I not. Just, I just did that for some reason, and then it just became the thing that I that Mose does. Um, but what Jenna's saying is true, though, because after I ran and caught up to the car, I then had to run past the car. I had to speed past it and run like a hundred yards all the way over to where the farmhouse was, and. I knew I wasn't on camera anymore because obviously the cameras, what's interesting is not, is not, <clears throat> excuse me, what's interesting is not Moe's running anymore. What's interesting is Jim and Pam reacting to this weird dog person that just ran alongside their car. But they made me run all the way, like a hundred yards every single time. And we did like 11 takes of that. My and I've, gosh. I've never been more sore in my life than I was the day after that. Because I didn't I know bet. that I was going to have to run a hundred. I was going to have to run a dozen hundred yard sprints. <laughs> you were like an Olympic contender. You like outran a car. Yeah, it was the it's the most athletic I've ever been. I, I would say it's, it's the most the, the highest level of athletic achievement of my life. Well, we have it on camera. It's for all time. Forever. That's forever. Right. Documented. There's proof. There's proof that I used to be a good runner. But I'm sorry because you were going to say something about that episode that you yes. enjoyed. <laughs> so there was a scene that I don't even know if it made it into the episode. I don't think it did. But there was a scene where Jim and Pam, um, the, in, in that episode, at night, Pam hears Dwight kind of moaning and sad because Angela has broken up with him, I think. and. Yes. And then in the morning, Dwight's gone. And the, in Jim and Pam come down and are, are being, Moses serving them breakfast. Bacon, tons yeah, of bacon. Nothing but bacon. And there were, it, it was actually, it was the closest I ever came to having a scene. Cause I, there were like, it was like a page of dialogue where mm -hmm. I was serving you and you were, at, you were saying like, I think Jenna, you say like, Moses, do you know where Dwight is? Or do you know where, uh, is she, is he sad about Angela or something? And we actually had an exchange where I like had to memorize lines and like know what my cues were. And I remember thinking like, I'm not, this isn't, I'm, what I'm doing is not per se good, but I'm enjoying the process of learning what it's like to be an actor and to actually try to like be, like be aware of the camera, be, be, a, be present in the scene, like listen to what you're saying and respond with the lines that were written for me. And it was weirdly kind of thrilling. And I was like, this is never going to make it in. Like, I, I, I'd worked at the show long enough to know that we didn't have time for this weird, dumb, Moe's, Jim, Pam scene. But, um, but I really did have fun doing it because it felt like, I think it gave me a, a greater appreciation just for like what, how hard it is to do that, how hard it is to just be in a scene, have lines that you have to have memorized and know how to say them 
properly and in an interesting way while there are cameras on you, while there's people in the room. It's just a very difficult skill. I think that the the world of television and movies would be better if every writer were forced to act sometimes and if every actor were forced to direct and if every director were forced to write. Like if we all switched positions mm-hmm. every once in a while, just to remind ourselves like the other skills that are involved in making TV are each of them is so hard. It's so specific and so hard. So I really did like that. I liked I liked acting in those scenes just as a way to like remind me of how difficult a skill it is. Now, I have a question. Yeah. Because of your experience with Moe's and knowing everything that would go into some of the physical comedy bits that you were asked to do, as a writer, does it ever get in your head when you come up with a really great gag? Do you think to yourself, oh, no, I'm going to have to put this actor through this horrible (laughs) thing? And like, does it ever like affect your writing? It really does. And and uh, and I have found myself talking to actors a lot where I and saying, like, we have this idea for this silly thing. Are you cool with this? They always say yes. Like mm-hmm. actors are, are incredibly um, adaptable people by and large. Um, they're always happy to or, or in my experience, have been always happy to say like, oh, yeah, that sounds fun. Um, the one one time I didn't do this and I wish I had, although it, it was fine. Nothing, nothing bad happened. But we wrote it. There was a scene in in the show, The Good Place, that I created where William Jackson Harper played a character who was sort of a he was a, a he's sort of a tortured soul. He wants to be sort of morally perfect, and he believes um, that such a thing is possible. And there's an episode where he's sort of going through a an existential crisis, and he's just sort of walking around lost in a daze. And he like he goes into he's like walking around and um, some sprinklers go off and they just soak him and he just kind of stands there and just gets soaked by the sprinklers. And then he just kind of like takes his shirt off and just kind of keeps walking. And then you cut to him and he's in a grocery store shopping shirtless. Mm -hmm. And then excuse me. And then like a woman comes over and is like, sir, you have to wear a shirt in here. And he just grabs like a shirt off a rack and just puts it on and smiles and keeps walking. And uh, it turns out that William Jackson Harper is like cut. Like he's, he's like a very like physically fit person, uh, which I did not know. Like that, I'd never seen him with his shirt off before we shot that scene. Um, But him taking his shirt off caused the internet to like explode because it was like, oh my God, the like, the dorky philosophy professor guy is also jacked. And, and I mean, it was, it was only good for him. Like I, it wasn't like that. Everybody was happy with the result, but it, I was like, oh, my God, I never asked him if it was OK that I wrote this thing where he takes his shirt off. Like, I should I should ask actors that more. Like, I should say, are you OK with this? And I think if there were it's a it's a gendered thing in a way it shouldn't be right. Like if it obviously if there had if it had been a woman, I would never in a billion years have written any scene where a woman disrobes in any way without clearing it with her first. There would have been a million discussions and meetings and whatever and it didn't occur to me that a man might also be uncomfortable with that. And so I remember thinking, like, I'm so happy that it was OK, that he was OK with it, that whatever. But I, I also, again, like and this weirdly comes from playing Moe's and all the ridiculous. I had to pick up 
cow patties and throw them yeah. at Rain Wilson and do all sorts <laughs> of like humiliating things. No one ever asked me if I was okay, okay with any of it. And and it it I do think that it's those conversations should happen more often, even when you don't think there will be any problem with this. I think there should be generally more communication between writers and directors and actors to just say like, hey, just want to make sure you're cool with this. If you're not, it's totally okay. We can write something else. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that answers your question or not. But Well, it's really interesting because as an actor, I feel like this comes up a lot in television because you agree to play a character, but you don't know what is going to be written about your character beyond the pilot episode. Yeah, right. And so there could be years and years and years of stories, and they are a surprise to the actor every week. Mm-hmm. And so with a movie... Well, I can see the movie script if there's like three weird sex scenes or like a weird scene that makes me uncomfortable. I can just say, oh, I this isn't the part for me. Right. This you know the, the whole role. story. Yeah. I know everything that's being asked of me when I accept that movie role. But when you accept a television role, you don't know what's going to be asked of you. And I've always thought that that communication you know, this this came up on our show later when they came up with the really funny idea that Pam would have a male lactation consultant who would be massaging her breasts in front of Jim and that Pam and the lactation consultant would find this very clinical and that Jim was trying to also find it clinical. But, trying to be cool. Yeah, but was right. also like, this handsome man is massaging my wife's breasts right now. And... um. And I remember they came up to me and said, we think this is really funny, but we imagine that it would be weird for you to have a total stranger that you met that day come and handle your breasts. And the joke (laughs) only works if they're actually touching your breasts. So what if your fiance, Lee, played the role? And then it's someone who's already massaging your breasts, <laughs> massaging your breasts. And I was like, well, he does massage them. So that is true. <laughs> and so it was great. <laughs> so yeah. then it was just weird for John. <laughs> yeah, then it was just weird for everyone else because we were super comfortable. <laughs> well, no. I think that's, that's first of all, good for them for obviously bringing that up. But also like that, there is an enormous leap of faith that you're taking as an actor when you sign on to a TV show, right? You're, you're, you're really like, you're using a very small amount of data, which is usually like a pilot script and maybe a meeting with the show creator or the showrunner, And you're extrapolating over potentially 10 years and 200 episodes of like, am I putting my faith and trust in this person? And is it going to be rewarded? Or are there going to be constant battles and fights about creative directions and things that they ask me to do that and and the and that this is part of why being an actor I think is so difficult is you only your only advocate is yourself like you don't have a you know you maybe have an agent or a manager who can have your back in those moments but it's like this idea of like the quote difficult actor end quote like I think that is a, a a horrible misnomer that has come from now 80 years of actors being getting a new script every week and not having any idea what's in it. And those ideas coming from people who maybe haven't run a bunch of things by them and just being like, oh man, now I got to do this this week. And the the range of how it can make an actor feel uncomfortable is enormous. It can be anything from like a strange man has to massage parts of your body that you might not want that person to massage all the way to just 
creative decisions about the character, the choices the character makes, I, things that the character does that you don't agree with, like it's just really hard. It's a, it's a very difficult thing. And it, the chance for it to go sideways is enormous. So the more communication there is between writers and actors, the better. To bring this full circle, that's another thing that I remember thinking I could attribute to SNL a little bit with Greg because Greg worked there. At SNL, like everybody does everything. Writers act and actors write. And it's very like community theater kind of feeling. And there's no division between actors and writers really at all. Like it's all one big hodgepodge. And that was Greg's whole theory was like, let's, let's break down these artificial barriers between the writers and the actors. That's why he wanted Mindy and BJ and Paul to act in the show. It's why he want, it's why he gave the, this season two finale where Jim and Pam, where Jim tells Pam that he likes her or is in love with her and that they kiss for the first time. Steve wrote that he gave that to Steve. Like that's traditionally the kind of thing that like he would write or like the, a co-EP a trusted writer would write that script. But Greg saw the big picture and he understood fundamentally that the more there was that we he broke down the divisions between writers and actors, the healthier the organism of the show would be. And he was totally right. So true. I mean, Jenna and I have talked about that a lot on this podcast. Other shows that we have done since The Office, I did a, a guest star on a show um, and the writer's room was in New York and we filmed in L.A. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, they never they've. They never meet the writers. They never interact with them at all. Um, yeah. And it, it's just been such a interesting and wonderful perspective to look back at how fortunate we were to have that sort of creative collaboration as our biggest job in our life. I've bounced up to writers on sets at other jobs <laughs> yeah. thinking that um, the way we had it on the office was normal, and they seem terrified to speak to me. They're terrified. <laughs> They are terrified that I am talking to them. They are afraid to say anything. I'll be like, hey, what's up? What do you think, um, like, next week? What do you think is going to be, like, how's this story going to play out? And they're like, I don't um, don't want to speak to you. The first yeah. time I did a multicam after The Office, because I'd never done a multicam, all the writers were, like, huddled in a corner, you know? Like, we're filming. It's like filming a one-act play. And they're all in the corner because I knew this joke wasn't working. And I had like a few ideas. So I went up to the huddle and I was like, hey, guys, I got like a two or three pitches. And they were like, what? It was like record scratch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And and again, Greg's ethos was Greg's ethos in a nutshell is best idea wins. And he doesn't care whether the best idea comes from a writer, an actor, a director, an accountant, a random person on the street who happens to walk by at the right moment and has a good pitch like it was just, what, why would we not take the best idea? And so that fostered that sense of like, everyone, everybody give us all your ideas. Like, let's put all of the ideas into a pot and pick the best one. And that is very frequently, sadly, not how it works on other shows. And um, it's a shame because, you know, when there were times when we would be battling about something in the edit bay about an episode and that he'd have two alts and he would say, which one do you like? And all of the writers would choose version A. And he would go like, and then he would call in uh, like the accounting department. Yeah. And he'd be like, which the one do you like? Accounting. They, the real accountant. The actual accountants. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Not, not, not you and Oscar. Yeah, not me and Brian <laughs> and, Kevin, and Oscar. Yeah. Uh, and he would go, which one do you like? And they would say, we like B. And he's like, yeah, I think B is better. And it drove us crazy sometimes. But he was like, you're not the audience. You're professional comedy writers. Like, of course, you're going to like this weird offbeat thing that we did. You know what the best example of this is? Um, 
So Jim's proposal to Pam at the at the gas station, right? Mm -hmm. So three versions. I don't know if you remember this, Jenna. We had three versions. Um, one of them was the car pulls over, the camera is across the street mm -hmm. and, and is shooting super long lens. And all you hear is traffic whizzing by um, in the foreground. And you can't hear, they're not mic'd in this, in this version. The sound was off. So you saw uh, Jim walk up and you saw Pam and the ha ha. And then all of a sudden they, they're talking. You don't know what they're saying. Jim gets down on one knee, Pam reacts, um, and they, and then they hug and they kiss and it's over. And second version was, uh, or the, the, the final version was like very traditionally shot. Like you were right with them in the gas station, sort of looking in a classic TV coverage and you could still hear traffic whizzing by in the background, but you couldn't really see it. And the cameras are right up close. And then there was a sort of intermediate version where you were a little bit further away, but you could hear what they were saying. And he screened all three of them. And the, the one that was where the camera was super far away and you couldn't hear a word gave me like the greatest goosebump feeling of my life. Like I was like, that's so beautiful. It's so perfect for the show. It reminded me of the scene in the British office where Tim takes off his mic and goes in and talks to Don. That was the sort of model of mm -hmm. it where, and you don't hear what they're saying. And then he comes back out and grabs the mic and says, she said no, by the way. And, and it's t terrible and sad. Um, and I was like, well, that's, that's a home run. That's like the most beautiful. It's so perfect. It's the most beautiful thing ever. And he was like, yeah, we're not using that version. <laughs> and I was like, why? And he was like, because this is a moment that fans of the show have been waiting for for five, six years, whatever it was. And it's not, it's just fundamentally not fair to deny them the ability to hear Jim say, will you marry me? It's mm -hmm. just mean. It's like, and, and this might be the most sort of like beautiful artistic, you know, like highfalutin version. But if, if what what are we doing if we're denying fans the ability to hear Jim say, will you marry me and hear Pam say, yes, that's just cruel. And I always fought him on all of those decisions. And he was always right. <laughs> it was just like at the end of the day, I was like, of course, of course, you need to hear, will you marry me? Yes. Like uh, that, that's such a foundational moment in the history of the show. And so he had that, he had that thing of like, let's develop and explore every possible idea. Let's walk down every path. Let's pull every name out of the hat. And at the end of the day, we will choose the one that is the best for the show, not the one that's loved the most by the people who work on the show or the writers who write things or any anything else. Just what is the best thing for the show? And that's why the show over the course of its decade long run had such an integrity to it. I think it's because it was always the decisions were always made in terms of what's best for the show, not not what a bunch of like jaded writers thought would be the coolest thing or something like that. Do you so, want to ask Mike about the Christmas lights? Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a hard pivot. But we, okay, so in the first Christmas episode, which, oh my God, I just love that episode so much. I can watch it like every year. It's almost like, you know, what do you like to watch at the holidays? Oh, that, you know, um, Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. I like to watch the very first Christmas, Christmas episode. Yankee Swap. Yeah. I have had a Yankee Swap party for years inspired by that episode. I love everything about it. So there was this moment that we heard was inspired by your real life 
where when they put up the Christmas tree, the the tiny, tiny Christmas lights. And Angela's yeah. so mad at Phyllis. She's so pissed off. And we heard that was like actually based on something in your life. Were there, was, is that true? And were there other moments like that? Like things that were in your life that made it into the show? Totally true. My first Christmas in LA, um, uh, my, my then fiance, now wife, JJ and I got our, our first tree as cohabitants. <laughs> and we were so excited. We both love Christmas. We love like decorating the tree. We love everything. And we bought the tree and we took it home. We put it up and we played Christmas music. And we had bought these. My In my house growing up, you always did only white lights. I don't know why. That was, the, that was like what our family preferred. And JJ had been like, I like the big colored ones. They're so like cheery and happy. And I, for some reason, won the argument. I don't know why, but I was like, trust me, it looks great, it looks great. And so I went and bought those little tiny white lights and I very carefully strung them around the tree and everything. And then we we like were playing Christmas music and it was like a big countdown and I turned them on and you absolutely could not see <laughs> any of them. They just, it was the saddest, the least, the least, it was the opposite of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree <laughs> lighting. And... And I was immediately humiliated and I turned Aww. and my wife was just laughing at me so hard, like just what a complete failure this was. <laughs> and I immediately went out and went to the drugstore and bought big, big colored lights and came home and we strung Aww. them up. And so I, but I remember that, that feeling and like that episode is so much about like expectation versus reality. And so I was like, oh, that would be a good like little metaphor for what's about to happen to Michael Scott when he gets the Phyllis's oven mitt. So I just, I put it in as like, Greg was so into, and the show was so into those tiny, tiny, tiny observable moments of real life. And, uh, and so I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. And my favorite thing about that is after they turn the lights on and Michael goes, not great. There's a quick pan to Angela who just looks angrier than she has ever looked in her entire life. <laughs> I know. That episode gave me a full headache because I was yeah. just always so angry. Scowling, just scowling, scowling at everybody. Yeah. I mean, there that so much of what happened in those first, in that, especially in the first season and a half, uh, you know, seasons one and two, so much of that stuff was real observation. Like, about people's lives, like all of the gifts in that, that I invented for the, the, this, this was another great writing lesson that came from that episode. So in my original version, um, the person who had Angela, maybe no, Oscar had Creed who had Toby, who bought, Toby, Toby, had, right. Yeah. Right. So Toby in the original version had a talking head where he was like, I don't know a lot about Angela. I know that she's religious. So I bought her this book and the book was one of those um, sort of religious adjacent self-help books, you know, mm -hmm. like sort of like leading, leading a, a spiritual life or right. something. It's one of those kind of hokey books. And um, Greg was like, I don't think that he should give her that book because we already know that Angela has that tendency or leans in that direction. And so you're not, the audience isn't getting any new information. And I was like, all right, well, well, like, what could it be? Um, and then someone, it might have been Greg, pitched that thing of a poster of babies who are dressed like adults. Yeah. And we, nobody could understand why, but it was the perfect thing. It was just such <laughs> a perfect thing that it was like, 
you're learning more about Angela, right? Yeah. You've got a new piece of information about her character, and but it's still very much in keeping with who, what we already know about her. <laughs> right, right. And then that, and then that poster became like basis of like four other stories over the course. Oh of the, yeah, it became a show. huge source of contention between Angela and Oscar because she hung it yeah. by her desk. Well, and then Oscar had to wear it as a as a shirt. Yeah. <laughs> well, Angela in real life really likes animals who are dressed in costumes of other animals. I mean, so it's very similar. It's very similar to liking babies dressed as adults, I think. I mean, animals dressed as any anything, really. Like, if, if on Halloween you dress your dog as a, a hot dog, I'm going to be like, oh, my God! Your dog's Can a hot dog! So we have two dogs, and this year they were ketchup and mustard. Ah! Oh, I would love to see a picture of that. <laughs> that lights up Angela's one. life. It, it really does. So wait, animals dressed like other animals. You mean like like a like a dog dressed like a cow or like oh a, yeah, or like a teddy bear that's but has like a bunny hat. Yeah, I, I know why. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on Office Ladies today. This was such a treat. We want to tell people that you wrote a book. Yes. And the book is called How to Be Perfect. It comes out on January 25th. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. So this book came out of the show, The Good Place, that I created, um, which was about, uh, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's very hard to explain it in one sentence, but it's essentially a, I pitched it as a show about like what it means to be a good person. And for the show, I read a lot of ethics and philosophy by a lot of uh, very old people. boring people. And I thought I had this thought while I was researching it, which was that these people have such good ideas for how to be better people. Like is all of these ethical theories and this moral philosophy is like, it's like a how to guide for like living a good life and being a good person on earth. But their writing is so tortured and boring that it that no one wants to read it. So <laughs> maybe I could write a version where I sort of try to explain as best as I can what their theories are, but in a way that doesn't give you a attention headache <laughs> and make you sleepy. So that's what it is. It's it's sort of a summary of of a lot of different theories and moral philosophy. The way that the book is sort of organized is like I pose a bunch of boring questions or mundane questions that that face us every day. Like if my friend bought an ugly shirt and says, what do you think of my shirt? Is it okay to lie to her or, or can you, or can you, um, or do you have to tell the truth? And so it's questions like that, that are just things that come up in everyday life. And then I try to to explain what like different moral philosophers and ethicists would say about those questions. Um, so that's the idea and it's on sale January. It's on sale now. You can buy it now from any online bookstore that you prefer. Um, and also all of the uh, pr- uh, proceeds are going to charity. So you can buy it and know that you're uh, doing something good in the world by having money go to charity. Oh, so I love that. Just by buying the book, I am being a good person. That's right. That's right. That's, That's the right. idea. Yeah. So <laughs> I, that is, you're really setting me up to succeed. I know. I like it. I like it too. It, you know right away that you've made the world a slightly better place just by buying the book. It's that easy. It's that easy to be a good person. I love it. Well, this is what Mindy Kaling had to say about your book. She said, as someone who worries that a deep dive into morality will ruin my fun and problematic life, I was certain this book wouldn't be for me. Boy, was I wrong. It's so brilliant and funny and warmly written. You don't realize you're becoming a better person just by reading it. Yes, it was very nice of her to to blurb the book. She's her blurb is actually the one that made the cover, 
which I don't think I've told <gasps> cover you. Cover blurb. Oh, cover yeah, blurb. Cover I found blurb. it online. That's fancy yeah. blurb right there. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so excited to read it. Yes, I have ordered my copy and Angela has two and we're going to get them. And uh, Mike, thank you because I, well, I'm a huge fan of your Twitter as well. Yeah. I feel oh. like you're very, very good at taking complex ideas or thoughts and making them really digestible and entertaining. You're also very good at breaking down baseball statistics. <laughs> yes. I have found, I go to your Twitter if there's a big game on because I'm like, oh, well, I know that Mike is going to explain this to me because I don't know what all the hullabaloo's about. <laughs> it's very kind of you to say. I, I often wonder who in the world is still reading my Twitter because it is either in in ridiculous arcane sports data yes. or just screaming about something that a politician said. And it's like the the, the Venn diagram for the two groups of people <laughs> that, that, that want both of those things has to be tiny. So I'm glad to know that you two are still in the Venn diagram overlap of uh, people who read my Twitter. I am. I don't understand your sports analysis. Not always, no. But I find it just sort of fascinating well, we to love, watch your brain work. Yes, and oh. we love data. Jenna and I have discovered one of the things we have in common is we love tracking things. We get very excited. Just hmm. you name it, we track it on the show. Like I became obsessed about every plant that was at front reception. And I would document how every week there was a new plant. And that's something that I find fascinating about baseball is there's so many different stats. I don't understand them, but I will go to your Twitter when there's a big game and people are talking about stats. Yes. Yeah. Pitches. You really break down the pitches. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of part of what some people love about baseball and what some people hate about it is the amount of data that you can analyze. I love it because I'm the same way. I get nerdy about like about numbers and stats and stuff. Uh, but again, like when I when I go to my Twitter account and post like 11 consecutive tweets about like whether a, a certain pitch was a ball or a strike, <laughs> I do have the thought of like, who is this for? Like, <laughs> like who's, who is reading this right now and enjoying it? But that's the joy of Twitter is you don't ever have to know if you don't want to know. You can just send it out in the universe. Right. And who cares? <laughs> well, we have one final wrap up question for you. We always ask everyone who is on the show or worked on the show. If they took anything from the set. Okay, so unlike probably many of the people that you've interviewed, I left in the middle, right? right. I, I, I was around for the first four seasons and then the beginning of season five. And then Greg and I started developing Parks and Recreation together. I worked out of the office offices. Like I was still around. Um, but slowly over the course of season five, I, I receded into the background. So I didn't know, I think, sort of intellectually understand that I was leaving, leaving. Um, and so I didn't really think to grab anything specific from the set because it was like the, they were still being used. Like right. We're still making the show. <laughs> so I really didn't take anything. I have a couple things um, that I do treasure that are related to the show, one of which was when I left, Lee Eisenberg and Gene Stupnitsky uh, went to Phil Shea, property master Phil Shea, and got his contact for who made the Dwight bobblehead. 
um, that Angela had given to Dwight as a present, and they had a Mike bobblehead made. Aww. Uh, Aww. And as like a, it was sort of like a parting gift, and so I still have the Mike bobblehead. The only problem is I used to wear glass. I wear contacts now every day, but back then I wore glasses pretty often because we would often work until like you know one in the morning, um, and my contacts would dry out. And the bobble, the Mike bobblehead had gla- had actual glasses on, and at some point I think when we moved, the glasses broke off, which is a bummer. And I've often thought about trying to repair them somehow and put them back on. So I have a Mike bobblehead and I do have somewhere, and I don't even know where, there was a moment at which the everyone realized that the world's best boss mug would be a thing that was going to matter for the run of the show. And Phil ordered like 24 of them, uh, just as in case they broke or in case we needed more of them or whatever. And I asked him if I could have one and he gave me one. So oh, I have a wow. world's best boss mug, not one that was ever used. It's not a famous one. It's not the one from the opening credits or anything, but I do have a world's best boss mug um, that is technically speaking from from the set, I guess, if you want to if you want to stretch the definition of from the set. And you know what uh, else you have is you have your binder with all your notes. That is amazing to me. I have that. I have a lot of notebooks that I still look at from those early days. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm sure there's a couple other things here and there somewhere. Um, someone I, I think the, after the finale wardrobe asked me if I wanted to keep any of the Moe's clothes. <laughs> and I believe what I said was, please burn them in a fire. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Mike, this was so fun. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for so having much. me. It's so nice to see you too. I'm so pleased that you are you are the official voice of the show. It seems very fitting to me that that uh, the world is seeing the show through your eyes. Oh, that's very kind of you to say. We're loving it. That was amazing. I love talking to Mike. I could talk to him forever. Me too. And he said to us, you guys, he was like, if you ever have any questions for me about anything for the office or other things, let me know. And I was like, Jenna, how often can we text him? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yes, Mike, get ready for an email flurry. You Just love a the flurry. Word flurry. I, it's cute. It's a flurry. I mean, instead of Jenna's blowing up your phone, she flurries up your phone. I'm going to flurry it. Well, you guys, Mike's book is called How to Be Perfect, The Correct Answer to Every Moral Question. It is out now. And Mike really is giving away 100% of everything he's making on his book to five different charities. And the book is awesome. Well, that's our show this week, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Office Ladies. Next week, we have the promotion. Yeah. Jim gets a little mini office in the office. He gets a glass box. He does. In the middle of the bullpen. It's strange and interesting. And we'll tell you all about it. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Office Ladies. Office Ladies is produced by Earwolf, Jenna Fisher, and Angela Kinsey. Our show is executive produced by Cody Fisher. Our producer is Cassie Jerkins, our sound engineer is Sam Kiefer, and our associate producer is Ainsley Bubico. Our theme song is Rubber Tree by Creed Bratton. For ad-free versions of Office Ladies, go to stitcherpremium.com. For a free one-month trial of Stitcher Premium, use code OFFICE. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, 
<laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, we all carry around different stressors. Some are big, some are small. I know I keep mine kind of bottled up, and it can start to affect us. Well, therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. You can finally get a chance to talk about all those stressors. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash OfficeLadies today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash OfficeLadies.